Welcome, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another of our book in print talks. Book in print talks are presented by University of Oregon faculty authors whose recently published books were supported by an OHC research fellowship and or OHC subvention grant to help cover publication costs. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. This talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous nations of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua and Slusla Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian tribe, the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians and the Klamath tribes. We express, our, we express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to all other displaced indigenous people who call this place we call Oregon home. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today. Craig Kaufman is an associate professor of political science and a participating faculty member in environmental studies and Latin American studies at the University of Oregon. Professor Kaufman's research investigates how the interaction between actors at the global and local levels determines policy responses to environmental challenges like climate change and ecosystem destruction, both domestically and internationally. He is the author of Grassroots Global Governance, Local Watershed Management Experiments and the Evolution of Sustainable Development from Oxford in 2016. His articles have appeared or are forthcoming in Global Environmental Politics, World Development, Latin American Research Review, Environmental Research Notes, Agricultural Water Management, Peace Review, Encyclopedia of Political Theory, and elsewhere. Professor Kaufman is a member of the United Nations Knowledge Network on Harmony with Nature, tasked with providing recommendations on implementing Earth law as a means for implementing the post-2015 Sustainable Development Agenda. His research has been supported by the Inter-American Foundation, the Rotary Foundation, Sony Corporation, the University of Oregon, the Latin American School of Social Sciences in Ecuador. Today, Professor Kaufman will talk with us about his latest book, co-authored with Pamela A. Martin, The Politics of Rights of Nature, Strategies for Building a More Sustainable Future. It was published by the MIT Press in August 21. The publication was supported by the Oregon Humanities Center. Welcome, Craig. We're looking forward to learning more about the politics of rights of nature. Um, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's nice to see some familiar faces uh, in the participant list. I know that some of you are familiar with the concept of rights of nature, uh, but I thought that maybe some may be less familiar. So I wanted to just begin by saying that, um, you know, when we talk about rights of nature, I'm referring to the idea that nature, which is usually conceptualized as ecosystems like forests or watersheds, uh, that they should be legally recognized as a subject with rights and not viewed as just a collection of objects. Um, and so one of the things that I'll talk about uh, that we look at in the book is that the rights that are recognized vary from place to place uh, with important implications. Um, but just to give you an example of what we're talking about, uh, the rights uh, often include ecosystems' right to exist, uh, to maintain their integrity, that is the ability to continue their natural cycles, uh, to evolve naturally, uh, and perhaps most important, to be restored when damaged. 
Um, one, one of the things I want to emphasize is that the idea of rights of nature is not new at all. Um, some indigenous groups say that they've recognized nature as having intrinsic rights for hundreds, if not thousands of years as part of their customary law and, and sort of traditional um, value system and knowledge system. Uh, but even in Western countries like the US, uh, the idea has been around at least since the early 1970s. What's new is the emergence of legal provisions around the world in Western law, uh, recognizing rights of nature. Uh, and by legal provision, I'm referring to rules that have formal authority. So it could be constitutions, could be statutory law, ordinances, court rulings, executive decrees, and the like. Uh, but for simplicity, simplicity's sake, I'm going to just refer to these all as laws. And so, you know, there's been a lot written on rights of nature from some moral and philosophical stances uh, over the years, and also, uh, you know, from sort of legal jurisprudence sense. Uh, what's different about Pam's in my book is that we're looking at the politics behind how this stuff got created, right? And the and particularly how these legal provisions, these laws emerged. Um, so I wanted to show you, um, I'm gonna try to share my screen here quickly and show you uh, a graph uh, that I made. Um, okay, so yeah, so here, you know, just to give you a sense of, of the phenomenon at a global level, you know, the first rights of nature um, laws emerged in 2006. And then as you can see, they've rapidly increased in number. Uh, and just at the beginning of this year, uh, I've been able to identify at least 303 rights of nature legal provisions across 30 countries. Um, and rights of nature is also entering international policy discussions, particularly around sustainable development, uh, showing that it's emerged as a nascent international norm, right? So it's still not the dominant norm by any means, but it's, uh, it's, it's emerged and become salient enough uh, to, to become a, what norm scholars often call a challenging norm, challenging dominant norms around sustainable development. Uh, to just give you an example of that, for, uh, in 2013, uh, as, as uh, the 2000, you know, the Millennium Development Goals were, were scheduled to expire in 2015, and countries were negotiating the post-2015 agenda, which now has become known as the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda, then UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon issued a report criticizing the dominant paradigm of sustainable development rooted in perpetual growth in production and consumption and argued for a new development paradigm based on rights of nature and ecological economics, which came to be encapsulated in the phrase living in harmony with nature, right? And so to this end, so in this report, he quotes, uh, you know, he says, harmony with nature implies that people do not assume that they have unlimited resources or means. Harmony with nature also calls for a rehabilitation of the human spirit, the concept of holism and for its relevance as a factor in the pursuit of a lifestyle that respects the rights of nature. And this means adopting a new paradigm that includes harmonious relationships with nature. A paradigm for a new economics must go beyond neoclassical and environmental economics and learn instead from the concepts of deep ecology, the rights of nature and systems theory. In the discussions leading up to the formulation of the post 2015 development agenda, nature must be placed at the core of sustainable development. Right? So to this end, um, kind of parallel to this, uh, the United Nations created a program within the UN Economic and Social Council, which is the body where sustainable development policy gets negotiated. Uh, called the UN Harmony with Nature Program, which is dedicated to advancing this new ecocentric paradigm within international policy on sustainable development and other issue areas. And, and you can see just from the header that there's a strong emphasis on promoting rights of nature laws around the world. Uh, so in one sense, my book is a story about how norms change, right? That is how new norms get constructed, and strengthen to challenge dominant norms. In this case, norms about how we should conceptualize sustainable development and humans' relationship to the natural world more generally. Um, the rights of nature is a really interesting lens for studying norm change, to me at least, because it's not followed the conventional model of how new norms emerge and strengthen, uh, You know how it's supposed to work according to at least theory and in international relations. 
Uh, and that's because most of the literature on norms in IR is based on neoliberal norms like human rights, sovereignty, rules of warfare, and so forth, um, that have been espoused by you know, the most powerful states in the international system. So the conventional logic has been you know, for new norms to emerge, they have to become adopted by uh, one of the very powerful state who then uses its power to put it inculcated into uh, international institutions. Uh, and through that, it gets sort of flows out to national law in countries around the world and then flows down. And if it gets implemented, gets implemented uh, through national law. So it's a very sort of hierarchical top-down structure or understanding of the flow and also kind of an emphasis on flows from north to south, geographically reasoning, if we think of the global north and the global south. Um, rights of nature has been very different in almost every aspect, um, in part because the norm challenges the dominant norm, which has been espoused by the most powerful states, because it's challenging the very basis of the economic system, this idea of that you can have perpetual exponential growth in consumption and production. Uh, so it's not been promoted by powerful states. It has come to be incorporated into international institutions, but through a bottom-up process being pushed by actors that are traditionally thought of as very marginal, marginalized in, in both domestic society and international society. Um, so to give you a, so that's what really puzzled us about it and what uh, prompted us to, to do this book, which I should say, is the product of about 10 years of collaborative fieldwork by Pam and I um, over, the, over many, many years. Um, so just to give you a sense of what the book is like, um, the questions that motivated the book and that we try to answer in the book are first, why do we see rights of nature laws emerging after 2006 and then growing rapidly? In other words, what explains the timing? That was one of the first puzzles, because again, the idea has been around for a really long time. Um, but something happened in 2006 where it just exploded. And we wanted to know how to explain that word. Um, and then second, what are the pathways through which rights of nature laws are being implemented? And, and how did it become a salient international norm? Um, and then third, another puzzle that really struck us was the fact that particularly when you look at early rights of nature laws, like the first adopters, the rights of nature laws look really different. Um, and that's puzzling because it contradicts uh, dominant theories of how norms are supposed to diffuse and policy diffusion, right? Because my initial assumption was that this must be a diffusion story, right? That there are these norms kind of circulating in the international system and they're being diffused through transnational networks uh, and being implemented in various places. And if that's true, then they should all look very similar, if not the same. Um, and so that was another puzzle that the book addresses is, you know, why do these laws look so different and how do these competing rights of nature constructions impact norm contestation over how we should conceptualize and implement rights of nature and then consequently sustainable development. And then also like later on as, as you know, after we've been studying these for five years uh, and it become more widespread and you had laws in various countries and some of the early adopters, these laws are starting to mature. We wanted to know, we started to look from the origin stories to the implementation stories, right? And trying to understand why are rights of nature laws implemented in some cases, but not others? And what are the main obstacles and what strategies are used to overcome them? And how is this contestation shaping the evolution of rights of nature? So those are the kind of questions that, that organized the book. I don't have time to cover all our answers to all of these questions today. Um, so what I want to quickly do is summarize our approach to studying these questions, uh, give some key highlights or takeaways, uh, and then we can discuss some of the other issues and case examples during the Q&A period if people are interested. So first, what explains the timing? Um, all right, so at first, as I said, I thought this would primarily be a diffusion story. And I expected to find a network of rights of nature activists going around and advancing rights of nature laws everywhere. Um, and while that's, that has become the case now in recent years, we were surprised to find that initially, by and large, the early rights of nature laws emerged independently, 
but in parallel to one another. And it was only later that global networks formed that and inspired that were and they formed because they were inspired by these early experiments with rights of nature. Um, and so to explain the emergence of these early cases, we borrowed the idea of convergent evolution from evolutionary biology. And this is the idea that you see the simultaneous emergence of functionally similar traits. Uh, in our case, rights of nature laws that contain the same underlying ecological principles, what's what lawyers call ecological jurisprudence, um, the legal theory behind it. Uh, and they're doing so in response to the same environmental pressures, right? But convergent evolution also emphasizes that while species will evolve functionally similar traits in response to common pressures, that they'll that these traits will be adapted to each local context and so look different, right? So a common example given is birds will, uh, that rely on similar, um, you know, birds all develop beaks in response to uh, pressures for food, um, but their beaks are gonna be shaped differently in different habitats to respond to the different food sources. Uh, and so we see this with early rights of nature laws as well. That, that is to say, while rights of nature laws share common underlying principles, they're codified in dramatically different ways that have important implications for norm development. Um, so basically the story that we found was that by the late 1990s and early 2000s, essentially industrialization had intensified to such an extent that globally there was an unprecedented level of pressure being put on ecosystems and then consequently the local communities relying on them. So communities often fought back to protect these ecosystems, uh, but were targeted either legally uh, or often and or often violently, uh, leading to a rise in what human, UN human rights officials call co-violations, that is environmental destruction coupled with human rights violations against people seeking to defend nature. Uh, and this led to a general feeling that existing environmental and human rights laws are both inadequate to address the problem, leading people to search for and experiment with new legal approaches. And this was happening all over the world in response to common global pressures, but through independent domestic processes happening in parallel. And so I, I want to note and emphasize, because your first question may be, well, then how come we don't see more rights of nature laws everywhere? I wanna note that not every culture around the world experimented with rights of nature laws as the solution, right? Uh, they sometimes framed them or structured them differently. Some communities adopted non-rights-based approaches like advocating ecocide as a crime, uh, which is common in Europe, uh, or laws emphasizing responsibility rather than rights uh, through the concepts of ecological civilization or protecting sacred natural sites or what have you. My book just happens to look at the cases that use rights of nature laws. Well, which were simultaneously developed in different places through independent parallel processes. Um, and, it, and so one of the, for norm theory, one of the important um, implications of this is that you see pressures on South and North for humans and nature's rights. And so if this isn't a, a being driven by the North onto the global South, or frankly, just from the global South onto the global North, you're seeing multi-directional pressures going in all kinds of directions. Um, so interestingly, rights of nature though, was being constructed in different ways with important normative implications. That is they differ on fundamental normative questions as how nature should be defined, what rights should be recognized, who should represent nature among other questions. So in other words, the construction of a new international rights of nature norm was characterized by fundamental debates arising out of contestation and experimentation at the local level. And by explaining how this happens, our book contributes to um, an emerging literature that recognizes norm construction as a process, right? So to explain this experimentation and learning why you get different kinds of laws, we draw on pragmatist theories of institutional change. Um, but by explaining how this happens, our book contributes to an emerging literature that recognizes norm construction as a process. Uh, and this challenges the traditional approach to the study of norms in international relations, which tends to treat norms as static things that just exist out there in the ether and are sort of plucked by norm entrepreneurs who take them and then work to strengthen them. Um, but by contrast, we show how new norms are constructed through processes of contestation, 
experimentation and learning. So to help us analyze the different ways rights of nature was being constructed uh, to try to get, you know, this was basically a theory generating exercise. Uh, so we created a framework for comparing rights of nature laws along different criteria associated with scope and strength. So scope refers to the range of rights that are afforded and how broadly these rights are applied. And this has normative implications, as I said, regarding how nature is conceptualized and defined in practice. And strength refers to enforcement capacity expressed through laws, formal authority, and individuals' capacity and responsibility to enforce nature's rights. Um, so just to give you an example, we, we use this uh, framework to look at all the rights of nature, all the, the various laws from all the countries that had them. But I'm showing you here some three archetypal differences um, just to show you some of the differences. So in some places like Ecuador, nature is defined very abstractly, very broadly as just sort of all of nature. Um, and in Ecuador's case, they draw on Andean indigenous um, notions of Pachamama, which very imperfectly translates as Mother Earth. It's not a great translation, but gives you some sense of, um, so it draws on sort of Andean uh, cosmovision, essentially. Uh, but it's very broad and abstract. It's sort of everything, this idea that the world is, an, is a living entity made up of interconnected systems. Uh, whereas in New Zealand, uh, it was defined as very targeted specific ecosystems that were framed as ancestors of Maori iwis uh, in terms of as living spiritual beings. And by contrast, in the United States, uh, again, you have uh, the laws uh, framing nature as ecosystems within these communities, but being framed very differently as natural communities. And I'll talk about the framing a little bit more later. Um, of course, it also matters a lot who represents nature. One option is just to say everybody represents nature, all of humanity. Again, Ecuador is the broadest. New Zealand, they appoint specific guardians. In the United States, it becomes sort of a matter of city and municipal citizens. And perhaps most importantly, there's differences in what rights are recognized. Um, so as I said, you know, drawing, you know, some of the, the earliest laws tended to draw on sort of ecological theory and philosophy. Um, and so recognize the rights to exist to main for ecosystems ability to maintain their integrity and in their cycles and be restored and so forth. By contrast, New Zealand took a very legalistic approach for reasons that we discuss in the book where um, the ec ecosystems are just granted legal personhood status and so are treated e the same as any juridical person or legal person, like a corporation or a ship or something like that. Uh, and so basically just has the right to have legal standing in court to sue, to own property, that sort of thing. But there's no recognition of a right to be restored or to maintain the integrity of their cycles or anything like that. Interesting, the USA kind of learned from Ecuador and went further than saying, you know, it's not enough to just say ecosystems have the right to exist. That's a pretty low threshold if they can just sort of eke out, you know, living on their deathbed. You know, we need to go further than that and they have the right to flourish. And this may seem like a, a relatively small thing, but it has tremendously important implications when you get into the question of how you would create regulatory standards to know when a violation of rights of nature you know, when a particular action is gonna violate the rights of nature or not. Like it's one thing with a very minimal standing uh, standard, like just to exist, um, you know, you can use blunt instruments like will an ecosystem essentially just die out and not regenerate um, or will a species go extinct? Creating standards to know when an ecosystem is flourishing is a lot harder. Um, and so there's important implications of that that we can talk about later, I guess. Um, then in addition to scope, we looked at strength. And this has a lot to do with the type of law that you have, because different kinds of legal provisions have different legal standings. So again, Ecuador is the maximalist. It's in the constitution, which, give, which gives its maximum legal standing. New Zealand, because it's a national act and their political system has parliamentary supremacy, again, it's quite strong. Um, this is in stark contrast into the United States, where this is being recognized through municipal ordinances, 
which are also which are typically subject to preemption by state law uh, or national law. And so increasingly, uh, we see communities in the US experimenting with home rule charters to get around the preemption. Um, and we also look at a number of other things, like do they establish a hierarchy of rights? Like, does it lay out the relationship between rights of nature and other rights, um, like corporate rights um, or not? Does it employ the precautionary principles that fleshed out by secondary laws? Uh, has the courts have the courts recognized it and so forth. So variation on all of those two things. By comparing all of the cases uh, that were in existence at the time through that framework, we were able to discern two, what we might think of as ideal types that are very different uh, about how you could structure and conceptualize what a rights of nature law should look like and what it should do. So the first one model is what we call the nature's rights model. And kind of typical examples of the countries with this model are Bolivia, Ecuador, and the United States. And here, basically all of na nature is defined very abstractly, all of nature within the legal jurisdiction has rights, um, and it recognizes unique rights for nature. Um, and, and because nature is defined so abstractly, it becomes very difficult to appoint specific guardians, right? Um, and so when you're talking about representation or guardianship or custodianship, um, they deal with that issue by just saying anyone can speak for nature, um, but nobody is required to, which is significant uh, because it creates a collective. One of the things we found is that that creates a collective action problem. If anybody can speak for nature, but no one is obliged to, everyone hopes somebody else will do it. It's costly. And, and it also sets up a situation where rights of nature is protected retroactively after violations are reported and upheld. So typically, it's channeled through the courts, it's costly. Um, and so you have these collective action problems. The other model, the legal personhood model, um, which is represented by Colombia, India, New Zealand, some other places. By contrast, you have specific laws that recognize rights of particular ecosystems that are spelled out. Um, and in contrast to recognizing unique rights, ecosystems are just recognized as having the same rights as all other legal persons. Um, and then specific guardians are obliged, are, you know, are appointed and obliged to represent the ecosystem at all times. So not just in courts, but in other kinds of policy and decision-making arenas. And often uh, in the best, uh, in the most successful scenarios, these guardians are then embedded in integrated ecosystem management institutions that essentially then give the ecosystem a voice in the upfront decision-making process about what behaviors will happen uh, in the ecosystem. And so then rights of nature can be sort of implemented and protected upfront proactively through the decision-making process. So two very different conceptions, each of which has pros and cons, which we can talk about later. Um, so what explains this variation? Um, we found that, you know, just to sort of cut to the chase, uh, we found that these very different approaches stem from very variation in three factors. You know, one was the national political opportunity structure. That is the policy arenas where windows of opportunity to create rights of nature laws existed. And this was important because it determined the type of legal provision adopted and thus its strength in terms of the legal standing you have and its enforcement mechanisms and so forth. Um, other factors explaining variation were the types of organizations advocating rights of nature, their position in larger socio-political alliance structures, um, and their motivations and goals, like what they were trying to accomplish. And this, along with the cultural context, determined what framing was used to spur mobilization, which explains variation in how nature is framed, the rights that are recognized, and these other factors, particularly like the scope conditions. So just to give you an example, windows of opportunity for very strong rights of nature laws opened in Ecuador through the writing of a new constitution and New Zealand through the process of resolving historic Treaty of Waitangi claims between the government and Maori iwi. In both cases, the processes created the opportunity to translate indigenous cosmovision into Western law however imperfectly, <laughs> which for various reasons got translated at least partially as rights of nature. Um, in Ecuador, indigenous groups were key members of a new governing alliance and consequently had influential positions in the assembly writing the new constitution 
And they use this to advance a new post-neoliberal approach to development rooted in the Andean concept of summa causae, which in the constitution for a variety of political reasons got operationalized as a set of interrelated rights for humans, indigenous communities, and nature. Uh, in New Zealand, several Maori iwi have used the treaty negotiations to get legal recognition of their traditional understanding of their local ecosystem and their iwi's relationship to it. Um, and again, for a variety of reasons, this got translated in, in three cases in laws, at least that recognize ecosystems as legal persons with rights. By contrast, the window of opportunity for national environmental law has been closed in the US for decades, right? As everybody knows, uh, for political reasons. Um, and so rather than trying to convince legislators to adopt laws, activists have focused on mobilizing community support and using ballot initiatives to adopt local ordinances, recognizing rights of nature. Uh, and interestingly, they tend to frame the effort in terms of strengthening democracy. That is the idea that local communities should have the power to decide how their local resources are used um, and that this is the essence of, of what democracy is and this is all, you know, democracy is all American. Um, and in, they, it, they just simply expanded the concept of community to include non-human elements, which they call natural communities. And one of the interesting aspects of this is the fact that this resonates in uh, as strongly in traditionally conservative red, you know, areas uh, as liberal, right? And so a lot of the, um, you know, the early first and most established rights of nature laws have occurred in rural Pennsylvania, Colorado, you know, rural areas that are that are deep red. And so in many ways, it's that framing helped sort of transcend traditional political divides. Um, so in the book, we analyze a number of issues that I don't have time to go into detail now, um, like analyzing why some rights of nature laws get implemented while others don't. Uh, we do a controlled comparison of Ecuador and Bolivia there, um, and also the creation of transnational networks that are working to advance rights of nature around the world. We did a network analysis where we mapped the global uh, rights of nature networks and were able to show that um, you know the areas where the networks are most dense and consolidated is, is where you see uh, the most rights of nature laws um, emerging. We can talk about that in the Q&A period if you like. Um, but I thought I would just leave you uh, with a few key takeaways um, that you might find interesting. Um, the one first is that we're seeing rights of nature legal provisions being advanced through many different pathways as people adapt to different opportunity structures in their countries, right? So very, even though, you know, it would be strongest to get rights of nature um, recognized in a constitution or at least in a national law, that's proving to be a very difficult, uh, um, you know, policy arena to contest, basically. It tends to be closed. There's very few examples of that. You see Bolivia and Uganda, as sort of two of the main examples. In other words, it seems like you know Ecuador and Bolivia uh, and New Zealand, again, you, you have these strong laws that emerged out of relatively idiosyncratic processes that happen to open up these windows of opportunity but are very difficult to replicate. Um, so by, you know, in the United States, whoops, sorry about that. In the United States, you're seeing a lot of local ballot initiatives. There are almost 200 of these around the country now. Um, and around in South America, you're also seeing local government ordinances being created. So local rights of nature laws are by far the most common um, rights of nature legal provisions. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are aware that um, there are a number of indigenous nations that are recognizing rights of nature in their tribal law. I believe there are nine or 10 to date um, in, this is primarily a North American um, phenomenon. Um, and then interestingly, again, because of the difficulty of going through the legislature and the importance of trying to deal with rights of nature proactively through decision making, you're seeing executive branch bureaucrats just starting to incorporate rights of nature up front into regulatory policy so that you don't have to deal with laws and then channel this stuff through the courts. Um, and so that's been, in my mind, one of the more interesting uh, phenomena developments. Um, and then another thing that we were really surprised about was the fact that after this concept had, had matured, 
and rights of nature was becoming a more salient international norm, you start to see courts in a couple of countries recognizing rights of nature unilaterally. What I mean by that is that court, you would have judges in countries where there is no law recognizing rights of nature, strategically interpreting existing law to make an argument for why rights of nature has to be recognized. Um, and so Colombian was the first to do this, and then India followed suit, and Bangladesh is another. Um, and so one of the things that has done then is it's caused the evolution of the jurisprudence underlying rights of nature, right? Because again, judges are sort of borrowing on various bits and pieces of existing law uh, to cobble together these, uh, what pragmatist theorists will call ramshackling, uh, ramshackling uh, legal arguments um, for justifying recognizing rights of nature, uh, but some and sometimes having perverse uh, negative incentives, which we talk about in the book. Um, and so, and that all of that evolution is then spurring contest norm contestation at the international level about how we should conceptualize rights of nature and practice it. Uh, and in particular, um, there's now a debate over sort of the pros and cons of the nature's rights model versus legal personhood. And it's really this debate is framed around the pros and cons of legal personhood. Um, I don't really have time to explain this distinction in detail right now, but it has to do with whether, as I said, ecosystems are recognized as having their own unique rights, like the right to maintain their cycles and be restored when damaged, or whether ecosystems are just treated like any other legal person, like a corporation. And there's a growing body of literature that suggests that the latter legal personhood framing can produce perverse incentives and negative outcomes for reasons we can talk about in the Q&A if you like. Um, but also interestingly, there are growing linkages uh, between rights of nature and indigenous rights. Uh, and so particularly in South America, but also to some extent in North America. So in South American countries, you're both having indigenous peoples um, drawing on indigenous rights because they are recognized in international law and therefore stronger to strengthen rights of nature claims that they find useful for protecting their um, traditional territories. Um, and also sort of invoking rights of nature to strengthen indigenous rights claims against mining and oil extraction uh, and other forms of territorial protection. And increasing in countries like in Ecuador, uh, where it's in the constitution, having a lot of success uh, in recent years. Um, and so this is, you know, you're starting to see the emergence in some South American courts of this notion of biocultural rights. That is the idea that because of indigenous or in, in indigenous groups where those groups explicitly um, tie their sort of cosmovision of like their tie to their land, their territory, then you have the linking of indigenous rights with rights of nature through this idea of biocultural rights. Um, you're also seeing, you know, outside of indigenous groups, uh, linkages, courts making linkages between rights of nature and human environmental rights. There's a growing number of courts, particularly in South America, including the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, that are making the argument and have, have issued rulings that basically say human environmental rights, like the right to clean air and clean water, are dependent, that rights of nature is a necessary precondition for the protection of human environmental rights. In other words, like, what good is it to recognize the right to clean water if you're not going to recognize the right of the watershed to produce the clean water? This is essentially the logic. Um, and in Ecuador, again, where you have it's strong legal protection because it's in the constitution and it's now been around for long enough for this evolution in jurisprudence to start having material effect, you're starting to see the constitutional court strengthen rights of nature vis-a-vis -vis other rights in ways that are impacting the concept of sustainable development in really tangible ways. So for example, now the Ecuador's constitutional court has now issued rulings that say rights of nature takes precedence over private property rights, for example, um, and over the rights state, the state's right to development. Um, and in, 
one of the most interesting ones and perhaps most important for this idea of sustainable development is saying that, you know, just because you've done, you know, following certain procedures required by state agencies does not protect you from allegations or conviction of rights of nature violations and therefore shouldn't be used as a standard for sustainable development. So in early, early on in Ecuador's experience with rights of nature, um, Ecuadorian courts sort of had this legacy where they would rule that, you know, if a mining company had done its environmental impact assessment and got the, all the necessary licenses from the environment ministry, then, then they would rule that, that that doesn't constitute, there was no violation of the rights of nature. Um, because, well, that has now evolved to the point where now the constitutional court has said twice that this is not the case anymore, that having an environmental impact assessment and all the licenses from the environment ministry or any other ministry does not say anything about whether or not there was a rights of nature violation. And in making these rulings, the constitutional court has linked that to the states, the Ecuador, the country's compliance with international agreements around sustainable development, saying that you can no longer measure implementation or conceptualize sustainable development in terms of doing these procedural requirements like environmental impacts assessments and licensing. Um, and so that's, in my mind, one of the more interesting developments. And so I'll just end with this. Um, and so we're starting to see through these court rulings and, and advocacy by transnational networks, um, a real contestation within the international system about in, you know, how we should conceptualize and implement sustainable development and real challenges to the dominant sustainable development model, which is based on this idea that there are three spheres and that these are all distinct spheres. Uh, and this area where that you get overlap is where sustainable development happens. Uh, to, you know, if you take the rights of nature model seriously, um, these spheres should not be conceptualized as separate and independent spheres um, because nature is really the only truly independent sphere. Um, human society can only exist to the extent nature produces the conditions necessary for life. And economies are dependent on the functioning of human societies, right? And so if we recognize that uh, and build governance around that idea, then that suggests a very natural hierarchy of rights. Um, that is to say, you protect economic rights until they start to conflict with social rights, and you protect social rights until they start to conflict with you know, the ability of ecosystems to continue to provide the conditions for life, essentially. Um, and so um, this is what we argue, this is what norm contestation looks like uh, and how it happens. And so we, uh, people like Munta Ito and others have then started to gra um, graft this onto the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda um, <clears throat> to create sort of a prioritization and framework for um, pursuing development in an ecologically sustainable way. So I'll just leave it there um, since I know we're running short on time. Thanks, Craig, so much for that really, really interesting uh, talk and uh discussion about your new book. Um, please feel free, everyone, if you have a question for Craig to just enter it into the chat. Uh, I'll ask the first question. Um, you, you've told us about cases um, in Ecuador and in New Zealand where, as you put it, um, th these models translate indigenous uh, cosmovision into law as a way of creating a post-neoliberal uh, approach to development. And you also mentioned that in, in certain cases, we can see this happening in tribal law in North America. And I was wondering if there are examples in the North can context, in Canada or in the US, where implementation of, of rights of nature approaches in tribal law has moved out of the, uh, the context of tribal law into national law. Are there any cases of that? Like where in the case of, you know, is there a tribal nation in the U.S. that has used 
um, rights of nature law that has then spread to a state that's proximate to that tribe's homeland? Um, no, not the short answer is no. <laughs> um, not to my knowledge. Uh, and it in so again, I'm I'm not the I'm not an expert on all of the ways that indigenous. So I'll just say this up front that obviously different indigenous groups have very different perspectives on the utility and value of rights-based frames and rights of nature and so forth. Uh, and so, but there are some that have adopted it essentially saying that the concept has of wrecking, you know, that there are these intrinsic rights has existed in customary law and there may be utility in codifying that in sort of a Western legal context, because that may be useful for them in terms of interrelating with the, the states and other Western sort of legal frameworks. Um, so for example, um, you know, the Yurok tribe, I'm sure many of you know, you know, have, have been working on, on the rights of the Klamath River Basin. And, and I've, I understand just from listening to members of the tribe and the lawyers working with them that one of the reasons that they're doing that is because that allows them, uh, it gives them another legal tool to exploit certain California law and certain national law uh, to help better protect them. So it's a strategic tool that they're using. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the things that I found um, with, you know, when indigenous groups are are recognizing you know, rights of nature in these, through these legal tools, they're doing it extremely strategically because they think it can help them sort of navigate or inter, you know, interact with you know, Western law, which they would prefer maybe not to have to deal with, but they have to. And so, you know, uh, and so, yeah, I, that's about all I can say about that. But, but I haven't seen any, um, I have not yet seen any examples where a, for example, a state government has been inspired by, <clears throat> say, an indigenous group's uh, recognition of rights of nature and therefore chose to adopt it. You're, you are certain, certainly seeing citizens groups that are being inspired and therefore working, advocating um, both at the local level and at the state level. So there are a number of um, states, including Oregon here, where there are initiatives to um, to amend the state constitutions to recognize rights of nature, so. So in your talk, you mentioned uh, in passing that, and, and you identified a couple of the pros and cons of the nature's rights model versus the legal personhood model. And you, you said that you would invite uh, the opportunity to say a little <laughs> bit more about those yeah. pros and cons in the Q&A. Could you say a little <laughs> bit more about the respective pros and cons? Yeah, so I think so to, to understand this issue, I have to back up a bit and 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 say that so the whole point of these rights of nature laws is that they are thought to be tools for spurring normative change, right? And they really need to be understood in that context, trying to get people to change the way that they conceptualize their relationship to the natural world and therefore hopefully the their behaviors. Um, and so, and so the idea is that, um, you know, our legal system has not kept pace with either scientific knowledge or, you know, the crises that we face and therefore needs some transformation. Um, and so the idea is that these rights of nature laws can be a tool for trying to start to transform these legal systems. If that's, you know, if you're gonna try to do that, um, the idea is you have to insert these uh, eco ecological jurisprudence principles into the legal system to try to so spur that that transformation in much the way that you might have a computer virus that you insert that then sort of flows out. I don't, I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with that analogy, uh, but sort of this idea that you have systems, you know, you try to start to have system spread, right? Uh, system change. If you're in a, if you're going to adopt a rights-based approach to this, um, the argument is that having unique rights for nature, like recognizing nature as having the right to be, to evolve naturally, to be restored, maintain its cycles, um, just putting that in there starts forces a 
reconceptualization of what nature is and what our responsibilities are to it and so forth and so on. It, but if you just say, you know, such and such ecosystem, like this watershed or this forest is a legal person, like any other legal person, there are no ecological principles really being input. And in, you're, you're essentially just using an anthropocentric legal tool uh, in an, you know, in an anthropocentric legal system without any ecological jurisprudence principles. And there's and so you're, there's really no tool for sort of transformation there. And research, you know, by, there's some people um, that have looked at how this has worked in water management that have concluded that have shown essentially that it can actually have negative consequences in terms of reducing um, people's uh, sympathy for environmental protection because it starts to re reframe the ecosystem as just another water users with whom other water users have to compete, for example, right? And so um, that's just one example. Another example is that, again, if you have these judges adopting um, sort of existing legal concepts, you know, if you're gonna have a legal person, then you have to say who is gonna represent that ecosystem, guardianship, right? And so you have examples like the Indian court then borrowed the concept of guardianship, but in, in Western law, the concept of guardianship is usually used for an incapacitated, you know, it's this idea that the state has to step in because some human is incapacitated. It's either a child or a mentally impaired person or something, and that they can't take care of themselves. And therefore you need, the court has to apply a parent, right? Like the, in loco parentis is the legal doctrine and a parent in place of a parent. And, you know, that's, both sort of contradicts the underlying ecological principles um, because it reproduces the mistaken anthropocentric idea that humans are the omniscient, powerful parents and nature is sort of the child, when in reality, it's probably we should flip that relationship. Um, but also there's practical um, implications because, you know, in the Western legal system, the guardians are not, they don't just speak for their charges, they're held responsible for those charges as well. So they, they take on the liabilities as well. And so, you know, in India, that meant that the, the courts appointed state representatives to serve as the guardians of the river, the Ganga and Yamuna rivers, uh, for example. Um, but then the, the guardians rebelled and said, what are you, are you telling me that the next time the Ganga River floods and kills people, which it does every year, that I'm going to be personally liable, that the families of those people can sue me. And, you know, and so obviously the idea that that ecosystems can be held liable for damage from their natural cycles is sort of absurd from a ecological jurisprudence framework. But nonetheless, that's what you get if you just take this anthropocentric legal concept and you know, insert, an insert nature into an anthropocentric legal system without adapting it in any way. So the next question has to do with the takeaways that you talked about when you mentioned that there are many pathways um, based on the opportunity structures, differences in opportunity structures. And you, at that point in your, your talk, you mentioned that you were especially interested in cases like, surprisingly to me, um, executive branch bureaucrats in Santa Monica mm -hmm. who are just implementing the, these uh, concepts into their local laws. Mm -hmm. Would you say a little bit more about um, how that's working and whether you think that that's a sustainable approach or an approach that could spread? And are there other places in the US? I noticed that you mentioned other places that are not the United States, but are there other, uh, you, you said Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. are there other municipalities where this is happening in the United States? Um, I'm sure there are, but I don't know of them all because they're harder to track. It's easier to track when you get a law change um, and then a court, you know, and then a lawsuit. Uh, it's easier to identify those. So, um, so I, I guess I'll answer the question this way. For one, I do think it is a promising and a sustainable model. In fact, I think it's a much more promising and more sustainable model than trying to go through the courts constantly, 
Um, because especially in the United States, because the reality is, I think personally, that um, just trying to argue legal standing is a sort of a fruitless endeavor in our court system, just because of the way our, the structure of our system. Um, but so it's more important. So again, you gotta remember the, the rights of nature are just a tool to achieve another purpose. They are not the end goal in and of themselves, right? That's really crucial to keep in mind. And so if that's true, um, you can take the principles of rights of nature and start incorporating them into decision-making processes up front at any, in any sort of policy arena. Within corporations can do this, universities can do this in their sustainability plans. Um, and that's happening. There's some effort to try to, uh, through the STAR system, or the ASTAR system or whatever. Um, and, and municipalities who have to deal with these issues and are feeling the pressure um, on their ecosystems, erect, you know, I think are increasingly finding that why go through the political headache of trying to, um, you know, deal with these laws that are going to inevitably just trigger lawsuits when we can just try to think through how would these principles be applied in regulatory policy. Um, and so, and so in Santa Monica, they, they did that through their sustainability um, plan, which is a lot about water management and how they, you know, cause it's um, water shortages and water efficiency. And they've created one of the, one of the reasons why I think Santa Monica is more successful than many others is that again, this sort of preemptive proactive approach as opposed to like waiting for, you know, a fracking company in to come in and then getting a response against environmental damage from fracking or sewage sludge or what have you, you know, being pre preemptive and thinking about, okay, let's think strategically about how we're going to manage our water resources and what principles should we use to do this? And then what metrics should we use for um, determining if we're on track or whatnot? And then thinking about how you can implement incorporate rights of nature principles into each of those aspects. And that's essentially what, right, what uh, Santa Monica did. And so they have this dashboard of, essentially they're, they're pioneering rights of nature regulatory standards through this dashboard about how would you, you, know, um, you know, measure whether or not you know, rights of nature are being violated in terms of how much water you can take out of an aquifer you know, um, or what have you. And so that's why, and they're doing it. So you can check out their website. I don't have the, unfortunately, the website on the tip of my fingers, but if you Google it, you know, uh, Santa Monica sustainability ordinance dashboard, there's a, they have a dashboard that you can bring up and look at the various metrics that they, so, uh, so, so sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, so this is an idea that, so again, so that's, it's now becoming people. So um, administrators <laughs> like municipal administrators um, are now becoming aware of this enough that when they hear it, there's like, this makes a lot of sense. And so it is spreading and you're seeing it particularly in Australia where again, water shortages are, are dire um, and they're having to deal with these issues. Uh, so you're just, but it's a very new phenomenon. So I just, I think it will spread. I just think it's too new to, to see this, the wide diffusion yet. Uh, this will be the last question. We're just about out of time. You mentioned along the way that um, part of what was you in your your effort here was that it was a theory generating uh, exercise, and that you ended on or you talked throughout about um, the way that this book uh, innovates about uh, norm change, mm -hmm. the way that norms change. Um, was that an intended aim of the book, or was that a kind of unintended consequence of what you found? It was an unintended consequence of what we found, um, which I thought was some of one of the more interesting aspects of the project. Again, like we were just, we were just, you know, it started when Pam and I met when we were living and working in Ecuador, and we thought it was, was just a uniquely Ecuadorian story. And then we thought it was with Bolivia, just a uniquely Andean story. And then, you know, and you, you know, we found it was US and New Zealand and then so forth and so on. And it became clear this was like a global phenomenon. And so again, like I said, we initially just thought this was a diffusion story. It must be sort of this diffusion, but then it wasn't when we did the interviews and the process tracing, we found that it's not. And then we, at the same time, noticed that 
this, this concept was actually gaining saliency in international policy circles. And we're like, this just doesn't make, you know, how do you, this doesn't make sense given what we know about how norms are supposed to become salient at the international level, because this is being advocated by actors that are thought of as, that are marginalized, that are weak, that are not supposed to have power. And it's directly threatening the dominant norms that are embraced by the most powerful actors in the international system. So how do we explain this? And I mean, then that's essentially how it came about. Well, Craig, I wanna thank you so much for uh, talking to us today about your new book, uh, The Politics of Rights of Nature, Strategies for Building a More Sustainable Future. It's been really an interesting conversation. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks everyone for joining us for Craig Kaufman's book in Print Talk. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu and we'll see you next time. Thanks.